This is the Blatcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt. Yes, welcome to the Blattcast. As always, I am Christian Blatt. Uh, very excited for this conversation that I'm about to have today. I'm joined by author Jeff Gomez, who has written a, well, a number of books, but the one that we're going to speak about now was called There Was No Alternative, Generation X, AIDS, and the making of a classic 90s record, which if you're uh, of a certain age, you uh, certainly know the record we're speaking of, No Alternative. Uh, Jeff, thank you for taking the time to chat with me on the show today. Christian, thanks so much for having me. And uh, it's one of those things that uh, I, I don't even know if I mentioned this when I first wrote to you. I received it as a, a targeted like Facebook uh, ad, which you know I assume your publisher did. And uh, I was like, oh, this a lot of times I get targeted for stuff and I'm like, man, they don't even know me. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is definitely something that I'm very interested in. Uh, I uh, was talking to Jeff before we started. I still have my, my CD from uh, 1993. Uh, now I grew up on the East coast. Uh, we had a chain called the wall mm. and uh, because I've got a green screen, I can't show off the sticker the way I want to, but they uh, have a lifetime music guarantee. So there was a sticker you would put on there uh, the chain has long since gone out of business, but fortunately, my CD, I was just listening to it this past week. I don't need it to be replaced. So it's a good thing that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that they're not around anymore. But um, I, uh, it's, it's very interesting because a lot of times, and you talk about this in, in the book, a lot of times compilations are, you know, a lot of bands on the same label and they have, uh, hey, do you have a B-side for us? Some there's some great movie soundtracks that come out, you know, Nirvana, who we'll talk about, you know, they put a song on the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack. You know, you get a lot of that sort of stuff where it doesn't always make sense. But what was great about No Alternative, even realizing it in the in the lead up to it being released, was that it was obviously about something. It wasn't just let's put out a bunch of our favorite bands, although there was an element of that, too, I suppose. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really made it last, and you do get a little bit of that compilation itis, if you will, with the tracks from like the Breeders and Soundgarden and uh, Beastie Boys, where they are sort of live tracks or B-sides. But for the most part, what the producers really asked the bands to do was to think about the subject of AIDS, to think about the, the climate in the air, and to write specific songs for the compilation. And so you get bands like uh, Urge Overkill, Smashing Pumpkins, um, you know, Bob Mould, uh, American Music Club, really writing things that were specific to the cause and the subject of the compilation. And I think that really lends it more of, a, of an air that's really made it last over the years. Yeah. And I think that uh, rightly so, the book kind of starts before No Alternative. It talks about the, the Red Hot organization who had previously done compilations, uh, Red Hot and Blue. That was the Cole Porter one. Sure. And the interesting thing reading about that was that Cole Porter's estate and this being you know, the, the late 80s, was like, you can't talk about how he was gay. I mean, he was long passed on. Well, not about how long, but he had passed on. And oh, I, 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 yeah, so he had passed on a long time ago. And I think that uh, there were probably not a lot of things to know about Cole Porter's life, but that would probably have been one of them. And yet they were like, yeah, 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 we, we can't wrap that into it. Uh, but talk a little bit about, you know, we don't need to spend too much time on that, but I think that, infrastructure of Red Hot is so important to the relative ease with which once they the two parties connected, uh, this really seemed to pick up steam. Yeah, you know, they were uh, an activist organization with a real cause, which was to raise awareness and funds about AIDS. And, you know, we think back to um, uh, AIDS in, in the 90s and the 80s, just how how cloaked in secrecy it was, how much people really didn't know about it up until the, the early 90s. And so when they went to bands for that first compilation, uh, people did not want to, straight artists did not want to be involved because they didn't want to be perceived as gay, even some artists who actually were. So there really was a, a bit of a stigma, which was Red Hot's whole point was trying to break through that stigma. And so when Paul Heck, one of the producers who approached the Red Hot organization and said, we should do something around the alternative rock community, um, uh, indie rock worlds, alternative rock worlds, Generation X, which I was firmly a part of at the time, you know, were pretty oblivious to 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 AIDS. I mean, we sort of knew it was lurking there, um, but in terms of you know what it meant for us as a as a society, as a generation, in terms of also trying to solve the problem of raising funds and awareness for it, uh, we were pretty in the dark. And so this was really um, uh, one of the first conversations that was had with Generation X about this really serious subject. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's it, it's easy to think back for those of us who lived through this time, but, you know, for younger audiences who maybe have since, you know, discovered the, an album like this, maybe because of the Nirvana track or maybe, you know, Soundgarden or one of their favorite bands, you know, one of those things uh, to think about that time. And it was like, there was so little to actually know about AIDS. I mean, I think that, you know, in the late 80s, the most I knew about it was from an episode of 21 Jump Street where they dealt with it. You know, I mean, that was the most exposure that I had to it was really that, you know, and it was like Johnny Depp's character didn't want to drink milk that uh, a, a kid who was HIV positive. He hadn't even drank out of it. He had touched the carton. And I was, you know, and it, I, this is what, 35 years and I'm thinking about sure. it right now as I'm talking about it. So it, it, it had an impact, you know, and it was like, no, it's OK. You know what? Next time you can just drink this milk. You know, don't don't be so weird. And I mean, obviously, there was a demonization to the concept. And I'll be honest, like I grew up, I was I was in middle school, you know, in the, the late 80s. And, uh, and I was in 11th grade when this album came out. And so, you know, I grew up in the fairly rural suburbs outside of New York City. And it wasn't something that 
I saw, anything that I, I had experience with. But I thought it was interesting as you go through and you talk about the artists, uh, it wasn't just those who grew up in the artistic community in Greenwich Village in New York. It was people from all over the country. I think you said uh, it was Kurt Cobain's uncle had passed away from AIDS. Yeah. And even yeah. then, you know, it was not something that was was really publicly announced. And you would see sort of the code in some of these obituaries that were appearing where um, his partner was would could not be listed as such. And the thing was the Aberdeen News or something like that. It was listed as his, you know, longtime friend or something like that. And so right, yeah. th there, there were some bands on the front lines. And I think one of the most arresting stories uh, in, in the book is uh, Tim Brutili uh, from the band Red Red Meat, who was um, uh, involved with Glennis Johnson, who was the subject of the Smashing Pumpkin song, uh, a person in the Chicago rock scene who died of AIDS um, and uh, was close to Billy Corgan and wrote this really touching song about her and her life saying that, you know, this needs to be remembered. Um, and he had not ever, ever listened to the track. It was so close to him and he was so, you know, uh, bewildered and hurt by the experience. And it wasn't until I reached out to him for the book um, that he then, you know, had had the strength of the remove to, to, to steal himself or brave himself to listen to the song. And so um, it really was there in a lot of people's lives it really was there in the scene but was something that that was not talked about and when it wasn't culture you mentioned 21 drum street uh, another real touchstone for our generation was the movie reality bites where janine groffalo in the film goes to get an aids test and is really worried about that as, as a thing in her life and yet it's really you know kind of played for laughs and so i uh, the the sense in the air was that generation x and one of the things that red hot really wanted to get across was Generation X, you really need to wise up and listen to this because the uh, the downtown art scene of the 80s had been decimated um, by AIDS. You know, uh, figures like Robert Maplethorpe and Keith Haring, Keith Haring, and they wanted to make sure that that did not happen in, in another generation. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that it, you know, I mean, we had, you know, and obviously it's it's somewhat political to touch on, but the fact of the matter was that you had, uh, you know, two presidential administrations, you know, the uh, George H.W. Bush being uh, Reagan's vice president, they kind of continued this policy. It just didn't get talked about. Yeah. And uh, in the book, early in the book, you talk about sort of this moment where then just, you know, uh, fledgling candidate Bill Clinton is approached by someone I believe was from ACT UP and mm -hmm instead of handling it the way that maybe, you know, his, his handlers want him to handle it, he stops and he talks to him. And I didn't even remember that that's the moment where the- I feel your pain. Famous, where that's where I feel your pain came from, which, you know, that's sort of like the early, uh, the early cartoony, uh, you know, I eat McDonald's a lot, Bill Clinton. It's like, there's multiple, there's a few Bill Clintons that mm -hmm. we can think back on. There's the one that Phil Hartman played on Saturday Night Live. And then there's the one that Daryl Hammond played on Saturday Night Live. They're very different, but this is the, the, I feel your pain with like the, you know, before he even does the thumb up. And I was like, I didn't even, I, maybe I never even knew that that was that moment. And that's, that's so important to even talk about it and to think about how other, even other democratic candidates weren't talking about it. Um, I guess it, it just, it, it's such a reminder, even re kind of remembering a lot of this stuff heading into it, it just, how much stigma there was, you know, there's stigma, but it's like, yeah, people won't even talk about it. 
You know? Yeah, and I and I hadn't realized that about the I feel your pain moment either until I started doing research on the book, and and I was really impressed with with ACT UP's work in the late '80s and early '90s. You know, uh, the the gay community mainly in New York and San Francisco were the ones mainly being afflicted by this condition of AIDS and HIV, uh, HIV, and they knew that no one was coming to save them, and so they took it upon themselves to not find a cure, but to push the drug companies to uh, 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 reduce their research times and reduce the price of these drugs and to push politicians where they hold their feet to the fire. Um, and again, really ambushing Bill Clinton in a New York um, uh, event and, uh, you know, heckling him. And, and so he came up with this, I feel your pain, which again, is, as the New York Times said, I think really changed the whole tenor of the campaign and maybe is the thing that helped get him elected in that first, um, in that first election of his. Um, he ended up being a little bit of a double-edged sword for the gay community. He didn't quite uh, pledge some of the funds or the awareness or the attention to AIDS that maybe he did in the outset. But again, ACT UP got Clinton to listen, and he certainly was uh, friendlier to them and did more than the Republican uh, candidates had been and, and presidents. Yeah, and I, I think that, uh, you know, that's such a, it, an important part of it. And as you just said, and then I believe multiple people say this that are quoted in the book, that they they rightly knew that like no one's going to help us if we don't help ourselves because they're, you know, I mean, it was in the sort of the earliest thoughts of it was basically that it was like referred to as I mean, there's this gay cancer that's going yeah. around and it was, I, it was originally called grid. And I think the G stood for gay, didn't it? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And it's uh, so, and then it was like, oh, and it's also uh, unfortunately affecting intravenous drug users, also a community that maybe people aren't looking to reach out to. So uh, yeah, I think that you they needed to make that kind of noise. And so the fact that the first Red Hot, Red Hot and Blue, that was like 88, 89? 89, 89. 89. So even being able to get that out at that time, that's still fairly impressive that at any point in the 80s, you're able to get some of the artists involved, like you said, some of them were gay, but they don't want to be necessarily associated with that. I mean, to think about there being a time that, you know, guys like George Michael, yeah. and Freddie Mercury were not out, but yet you see pictures of them from those times and people, you know, the modern audience is like, how did you not know? I'm like, I don't know. We just didn't, you know, you just didn't think about it, I guess. Well, th you know? I think, yeah, and things you take for granted too. And there was a, a, a an ABC primetime special about uh, Red Hot and Blue with Richard Gere doing an introduction. Um, and the, the network really wanted to be more about the Cole Porter angle and the show tunes. And John Carlin, one of the, the founders of Red Hot, uh, said, this is ridiculous. And they had, they had, he had written an intro for Richard Gere where he used the word condom. Condoms save lives. People need to use these. Uh, and ABC really pushed back. And it was the first time that the word had been used on prime time on a major American network. And yet that seems so you know, benign. This was something that was really going to save people's lives. And one of the things that I found really fascinating was sort of contrasting uh, the late 90s and the AIDS pandemic to COVID. Um, during the AIDS era, uh, condoms became politicized in the same way that 30 years later, masks became politicized. It was seen as almost a left-wing liberal thing if you went around in a mask where some people said, you don't need that mask, you know, take that off. And so it was really interesting to see the lessons that we didn't learn going from one global pandemic to another. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, and, and you make the, the comparison that, uh, you know, COVID was uh, completely, you know, especially in, in the early days, uh, just indiscriminate, you know, with AIDS, if you weren't actively 
having sex or sharing needles, you were much less likely to, uh, uh, you know, contract HIV positive to have AIDS. But uh, COVID, you know, you could have, you know, been in a in like a subway car with someone for, you know, a few minutes, and you know, you could have been at a at a party, you know, in in early March of sure. 2020. Anybody. And yeah, and and I think that. Uh, you know, and I, I, I certainly know a lot of people that uh, their views on, on masks have uh, changed as they go along. But uh, I, I had a, a very uh, conservative friend of mine who is uh, he's in uh, talk radio in Washington, D.C. He was talking about, you know, it's like, don't assume, you know, what my reasons are for wearing it. You know, mm. like, you know, he has uh, several children and he felt like they might be at risk. And it's like, I don't need to explain any of that to anyone. And it's also like, what does it what does it hurt you if I'm here at Costco and I'm wearing a mask? You know, you can feel how you want about it. That that's fine. But you don't need to say anything. You don't need to be you don't need to be Ricky Schroeder trying to go into the Costco in Burbank and uh, saying, why won't you let me in? It's like because I work here and it's a rule, man, just come on. Yeah. Silver spoons, leave me alone, you know? <laughs> and I think that uh, it's, it's also the sort of the same thing with, uh, with condoms. It's like, Hey, you should understand that uh, they're very helpful uh, at, at preventing the spread of disease, these disease, this one that we're talking about, but also, you know, all the other ones and, and also pregnancy, you know, and it's also like, we're not going to, you know, come into the bedroom and, and place it on you. We're just letting you know about them. And then you decide what to do in, in that moment. Um, well, I, I wanted to, I just bring in this uh, comment from the chat very quickly. Uh, our friend Dominica Saxon, I was in high school when the AIDS scare really hit around Idaho. It's surreal to how similar the societal fear was to COVID. And look, it's the same thing. You yeah. didn't know anything. I'm, yeah. I'm getting information about a, an infectious disease from 21 Jump Street, you know, Dom DeLuise's kids were on that show. So really, you know, were those really the best uh, sources of information? And uh, I think that that's probably at least my perception now as an adult, having a project like Red Hot that helped one raise awareness, but also raise money. Uh, I mean, as far as I know, yes, there had been uh, concerts, and I think you mentioned the single, uh, That's What Friends Are For. There hadn't been a lot, I think, of fundraising specifically for AIDS, unless I'm mistaken. No, and also, too, and there was uh, AMFAR and things like that. But again, the, sure. the the fact that it was going after, you know, Generation X and having and really talking about it in the liner notes to No Alternative, there were two sets, one written by John Carlin from Red Hot, uh, and then another one by Chris Mundy, who was a, a Rolling Stone author, a contributor at the time, of just really, and that was the whole one of the one of the meanings of the title was there is no alternative to safe sex there is no alternative to this thing which is in our face and in our lives and really is going to affect everybody so it was it was really a wake-up call and and the red hot organization's idea to their projects was sort of like a trojan horse mentality where the the music and the package and the and the visuals was really just a trojan horse to get it into the homes of suburban kids everywhere um and so you know you would sort of be lured in by uh, the nirvana or the beastie boys track and then you'd read those liner notes and you would even if it was just by osmosis somehow, just sort of, uh, uh, you know, learn about AIDS and know that it's out there. And and through some of the visuals, too, that accompanied the wreck that were really striking, the Urge Overkill video um, for their song that, that showed people living with AIDS um, was just a way to to, to show people, again, middle America everywhere, that, that these this was happening to real people and that it could happen to anyone. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, you don't want to marginalize other causes that people took up, but it's a lot easier for Sting to go out and say, you know, hey, we should save the rainforest. It's easier for, you know, Comic Relief to be like, we should raise money for the homeless. And you're like, yeah, these are all things that I can grasp. And then to say like, well, you know, there's this, this terrible disease that uh, is running rampant, you know, that uh, we should really try to find out more and, and how to stop it. And there's a way to prevent yourself from getting it. Um, in the early part of the book, uh, I, I jotted this down in my notes. Uh, I thought uh, it really encapsulates what you set out to do with the book. Uh, and again, it was called, the book is called uh, There Was No Alternative about the uh, compilation, No Alternative. And uh, the, what you wrote was, uh, what happened to the people who made the music and what happened to those lives? You also asked the question, did Generation X sell out its values as it matured, or is that just what happens when you grow up? And more importantly, uh, how can uh, we or uh, how do we recognize and pay tribute to the people who disappeared along the way? And I think that the album definitely did that in 1993 because a lot of people were bringing their experiences. Uh, I think that there are some very personal contributions to it. The one that might be the most in one of the more beautiful uh, compositions on there is Glennis, the Smashing Pumpkins song that you mentioned mm -hmm. was written uh, about this musician that uh, Billy Corgan knew. And um, that's not a Smashing Pumpkins song that I've heard uh, a lot recently. And I hadn't listened to it and I couldn't even tell you how long. And I just, it started, I'm like, oh yeah, this is like amazing. It's so mm -hmm. well done. And it's, Look, it's easy to kind of forget sometimes, uh, you know, Billy Corgan sort of has gone off musically and done some other things. I think he's incredibly talented, very interesting person, very thoughtful person. But this is really from that peak era. This is probably from right after Siamese Dream, before exactly. they even did Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And, uh, you know, so it's... Uh, I know, it's one of those. It's one of the standouts for me, and and I hadn't thought about the song in, in quite some time. Yeah, it, it is a standout, and I think one of the things that I really spent a little bit of time on in the book, and really in those thirty years, I've seen my own view change. Is is sort of the view of, um, uh, and I talk about this in the book in terms of indie rock versus alternative rock, the concept of selling out, and and even back at the time though, Smashing Pumpkins were being were seen as being pretty. Uh, they were strivers you know he made no bones about wanting to be the biggest band in the world and with that third album melancholy they became the biggest band in the world and yet they're placed on the record right next to pavement a shambolic indie rock band who later made fun of smashing pumpkins and when that when yeah. that when that uh, uh compilation came out i was firmly in the pavement camp i was just sort of this indie kid living in los angeles in a band um and thought yeah it was it was okay for pavement to sort of you know stick it into uh, billy corgan's eye um and looking back though Smashing Pumpkins made some really amazing uh, conceptual records that were really advanced and I think really uh, stand the test of time, uh, whereas some of that pavement stuff was a little bit sort of flash in the pan stuff. Um, and yet, uh, uh, so just, you know, can't speak highly enough of what Corgan's done. It's a little hard, though, because some of his, you know, personal views and, and, and behavior have made it a little hard to be on his side with some of the wrestling and all that kind of stuff. But well, he, yeah, was, right. he was just imperial in, 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 the, in the late 80s, it, early yeah, 90s. That's what I was going to mention. It's like, yeah, he like started a wrestling league. And look, you, know, you, you make money, you do what you want with it. It's just it, 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 he's kind of a bizarre person, but uh, there's uh, no denying the, the talent if if people want to analyze all of the work, that's that's up to them. But, uh, you know, it's uh, 
it's it's interesting and you know the 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 more fun aspect of having read this book besides listening to it i went off on a on like a matthew sweet tangent mm. and uh, it was just listening to that girlfriend album then his follow-up 100 fun and i was like i remember seeing him at uh, i think the academy in new york in the early mm. 90s i'm like oh my god i loved this guy and i haven't thought about him in a while and uh you know he he hasn't toured in a few years i don't think he's put out anything new but uh it, it and it's it's fun to kind of go through, you know, some of the, some of the stories are, are less fun. And I think that the thing that I didn't remember about the track from the Goo Goo Dolls, which is a cover of the Stones' Bitch, Johnny Rosie doesn't even sing on it. Yeah. It's such a weird inclusion. It's it's a very cool version of that song. But it's like for a band that hadn't made it yet to like, yeah, let's not use our singer and put our best foot forward for like what people can expect from us. Uh, talk about that. It's such a strange inclusion, but it, it's a great it's a great version of bitch. I'm not saying that. Yeah, it's just not what you expect. You know, but it's, all, it's also funny because when you look at the lineup now and you go, oh, Goo Goo Dolls, you know, they, they kind of make sense. They, they had some big hits. Um, and yet at the time, they were the ones who really had not broken through um, and were really the sort of the biggest underdogs on the record. And they had a friend who was, you know, they were in their early 20s, who he was maybe in his 40s at the time, a, a guy named Lance Diamond, who was a sort of local lounge singer in Buffalo, New York, who they would invite on stage to just do a song or two each set. Um, and so when they got the call to do this, this uh, compilation, much to their label chagrin, I think they were in Warner Brothers at the time, they called in Lance Diamond to do this raucous cover of this Rolling Stones song. Um, and what's really interesting and in talking to the guys now, um, super nice guys, by the way, I, I talked to the core duo. Um, they are really the only band who throughout the, from 1993 through to 2023 has been together this whole time. They've been touring this whole time. They've been releasing records. I think they've got a new record. They might be on the road right now. Um, you know, never broke up, never really went away and had to have that comeback the way that Urge Overkill has a new record. You know, Smashing Pumpkins was disbanded for a long time. And so they really were sort of the little engine that could throughout this entire time. Um, uh, everyone else was breaking up and going sideways and, and not them. Yeah, no, I, 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 they, they did a show after I went to an, an LA Angels baseball game with my family, and they played afterwards. And wow. I'm like, I'm going to stick around and see the Goo Goo Dolls. You know what I mean? I was just like, I would love to see the Goo Goo Dolls for free after a baseball game. You know, and obviously they get paid for that. So you know, it's, uh, and yeah, it was only within the last like maybe four years. And uh, yeah, and and interestingly, I think that guy uh, Robbie, who is, you know, is the other sort mm -hmm. of the mainstay. I don't know that he's ever worn shoes uh, for, for an event that I've seen him at, but it's uh, it's interesting. And before we talk about putting the actual album together and more of the songs on it, you have a passing comment on how Pearl Jam was someone that they wanted for this. And they do stand out as sort of like, oh, you know, if you had had Nirvana and Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Beastie Boys, you know, those are some of the big marquees from the year of 1993. Um, did you find out much about how it is? It just as simple as like, yeah, it didn't work out. Or was there more to it than that? There really wasn't. I think that, you know, they made yeah. a short list, both the, the producers and then the label, too, because this came out on Arista Records and the A&R guy um, said, this is great. It's a no brainer. Clive Davis signed off on this within like the hour of receiving the, the, the memo about it. And they wanted them to go after some some really big bands at the time, you know, Pearl Jam really being at the top of the list. Uh, they reached out. I think by that point already, Eddie Vedder had was sort of like, you know, 
receding a little bit and seeing what the fame was doing to Kurt Cobain. You know, uh, Cobain would not really, you know, die until the following year, but he had already seen what that fame had done to him. And, and Eddie Vedder was someone who, who really was trying to figure out how to live in that world where people wanted something from him uh, every second of the day. And I think they just wanted to pull back from all those kinds of things. And so uh, I don't think there was anything more than they just really um, uh, didn't do that kind of thing. Versus one one of the things that I really discovered in doing the research was that Red Hot Chili Peppers, up until really the last second, were supposed to be on the compilation. In fact, there's even uh, in the book some stickers that they'd had made that listed uh, them alongside the other bands at the last minute. Uh, it was going to be a live uh, take from a Grammy Awards and the Grammys. Uh, association or recording uh, 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 association uh, denied them the use of it. So they were going to be included up to the last second. Wow. How strange to think of the Academy that uh, is responsible for the Grammy Awards making a bad decision. There you go. <laughs> you know, it's uh, only the organization that gave a heavy metal award to uh, Jethro Steel Tull. But, uh, you know, or, Steel or Steely Dan instead of Metallica that year was another one. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. There's there's uh, there's no shortage of that. But uh, yeah, that. Uh, I, I remembered seeing that in there, and you know, you're talking, uh, you know, in the book. Uh, it, it seems like uh, Paul Heck is his name, the guy who yes. sort of the, the birthed the idea. He had this notebook of all this contact information. Uh, one of my favorite bands from the era, um, you know, a version of Still Around, is uh, the Afghan Wigs, and you kind of mentioned them in passing. And then, unfortunately, they never actually shot. And it's like, oh man, they would have. This would have been the same year, right before their album Gentlemen, and yeah. I'm like, oh, they would have been perfect to be included on here. And, uh, you know, just seems like another one where it just didn't work out, you know? Yeah, exactly. It was really trying to kind of getting the stars to align in terms of, you know, whether the band was on the road, whether they had songs, whether they had time to go into the studio. But again, I would have loved to, especially if, if the, the Wigs would have taken up the mantle of writing a song about what it meant to be, you know, uh, uh, a sexually active person in the early 90s. So much of uh, Greg Dooley's songs were about relationships and, and really brilliant. I mean, again, that Gentleman record is one of my all-time favorites. So I, I would have loved to have seen what he would have come up with on that theme. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I think that, uh, you know, tasked with that and, uh, you know, they've they've been in, involved in various other, you know, charitable organizations. It could be as simple as like, yeah, we're in Europe for like nine months. It might have just been that simple, you know, sure. and uh, it, I'm sure that there's there's more stories like that. Um, but I think that uh, there's there's sort of a there's something that you reference in here. And I didn't remember it until I looked it up. But in the book, just to kind of give people the idea of Generation X, which I'm so, so I believe you said in the book that you're born in 1970. My brother's born yes. in 1970. I'm born in 1976. So I'm still sort of part of it. Yeah, but I always, I always felt like the sort of the little brother to Generation X. It definitely wasn't the part of what came next. And I always sort of felt part of it because everything was hand-me-downs from my brother. Like, you know, his, a lot of his music, his clothes, everything, really. We had a lot of the same interests. And it's it sort of reminded me that what I was thinking when, you know, it still happens to some extent. But when people were so down, like, oh, my God, millennials are the worst. Generation Z is the worst. They don't want to do anything. And, like, you remember that they said all this about us. These are the yeah. same words you're using right now. It's like... Well, they don't even have a have a, a a home with a mortgage. I'm like, yeah, because there's there's no jobs. They spend their money on avocado toast. I'm like, all right, well, you know, how much how much money did you spend on 30 packs of Coors Light that we drank out on the soccer field? You know, it's like just leave them alone. They'll figure it out. You know, and and some of them, you know, find founded multi billion dollar companies like Facebook. So some yeah. of them figured it out. Yeah, but 
you talk about sort of this idea of trying to sell to Generation X. And when I looked, at, I, I, I put down the book and I went to go find it. You talk about this, uh, this Subaru commercial that was talking about uh, being punk rock. Oh, yeah. And because it's like not an official YouTube, I feel like I can play it without getting a strike. It's a 30 second commercial. I remember seeing it once I played it, but it's, um, it's trying so hard to be cool. It's the way it's edited, the way it's written. So let's watch this uh, yeah. Subaru commercial. I'm talking about my new Subaru Impreza and explain its relevance to you and me and the car business, okay? Okay. This car is like punk rock. Now, just trust me, this is relevant. Do you remember when rock and roll was really boring and corporate? Well, punk challenged all this and said, hey, excuse me, but here's what's cool about music, remember? Now, Subaru, with this Impreza, is challenging some car thinking here. This car is all about reminding you and me what's great about a car and moving forward and making cars better and less disappointing. Just like punk, except it's cars. Well, I just thought of another analogy. Yeah, and then there's the, I just thought of another thing, but I'm not actually going to finish it. And it's sure. like the way it's edited, you know, there's all that. Uh, it's, uh, I, I don't know, is there a better word for that than pandering? You know, I mean. I, I think that about I think that about uh, sums it up, and and I don't think it worked either. Was even the thing, but the guy, the sort of the slacker. We haven't used the S word yet in terms of slacker and That's kind true. of the long yeah, hair, yeah. looking look very much an Ethan Hawke sort of you know a, a wannabe. And I I feel for that poor guy. I know he went on to have a career. I think he was in uh, Saving Private Ryan and some other big movies, and yet you know it just goes to show that they you know we were castigated for having uh, what were known as McJobs, um, uh, coined by Nicholas Copeland in his novel Generation X. You know, working at uh, Starbucks or Blockbuster Video or record stores. And yet, you know, once we once advertisers and big companies realize that those minimum wage jobs were still going to leave us enough money at the end of the day to, to buy cars and things, you know, we were very much marketed to in terms of, you know, cars. And then in, in the book I read about OK Soda, which was, you know, Coca-Cola trying to market a drink directly to Generation X. And that didn't work either. Well, let me, inter let me interrupt because you mentioned that you grew up in California and you had never had OK Cola. Uh, for some reason, where I grew up in the rural suburbs of New Jersey, or in New York on the border of New Jersey, um, uh, we had Jolt Cola before people. And I remember trying OK wow. Cola and I had to think about it. And I was like, the best way to describe it is that it tasted like gray, like what you would think the color gray would taste like. It was also kind of like a very bland color. And I remember I'm like, OK, they have the cartoons and they had like a they had an 800 number you could call with just like mm. a recording, you know, and it was. You know, it's like now it would be, you know, go to our Instagram page yeah. and it'll be like little videos. And it was like, okay, I kind of get what they're trying to do. But one, the product wasn't that good. It's like when McDonald's did the Arch Deluxe. Mm -hmm. They're like, we're going to make a sandwich that kids aren't going to like. It's going to be for grownups. It's like, yeah, but grownups didn't like it either. You know, it's like grownups are still going to probably eat a happy meal because maybe they want the toy. But it, it was it's such an interesting thing. And I hadn't I hadn't thought about OK Cola in forever. <laughs> and so that was a, a fun memory. And I was like, yeah, they just didn't know how to sell to that generation, which I guess is the same thing that happened with millennials. You know, it's like, cool. how do we get their money? Yeah, or I think it's even more cynical than that. Again, the the name OK was meant to be. I think I'm in the book I write uh, today would be called Meh Cola because it was just like <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's not. Is it great? It's okay. You know, it was really yeah. much the sort of it was the shoulder shrug of sodas, and like you said, it was just it was like gray, and the cans were gray, and the 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 graphics were kind of depressing and looked like. Have these, you ever uh, heard radio stations that use the the Jack format? You know, Jack no, FM here in Los no. Angeles. It's basically, I didn't think of it as I was reading the book, it's literally what you just said. It's basically that. It's like, we're not a very good radio station, but maybe you'll listen to us anyway. It failed in New York after six months. 
it's been on, I, I've lived in LA for 20 years. It like started basically when I moved here. It's still here. It works in wow. LA. It's like a recorded voice. It's very like, man, it's like, yeah, we play what we want, you know? And it's like, yeah, we're not the best radio station. Why are you listening to us? You know? And it's, it can work, but that's a free radio station that people listen to in the car. It's not a soda that by the way, it, it was just okay. It was okay. just okay. <laughs> well, then they're they're living up to that very low standard that they uh, put for themselves. But I was really glad too that we we saw that as for what it was, and yet that branded us as cynical. You know, again, yeah. we we really couldn't win to where if we uh, if we would have bought into that and everyone was driving around in a Subaru Impreza and drinking Coca Cola, we would have been seen as as gullible or sheep. And yet, when we then recognize these things for what they were we were then instantly branded as you know cynical and slackers and and irony and all these kinds of things and yet how else could you react to something that again was so obviously pandering yeah and i think that uh the the people that you really profile in the book uh paul heck you mentioned chris mundy and i'm uh john carlin i think mm -hmm. it might be a little bit older than them because he was a few years ahead of them sure. in terms of doing red hot um, there's, there's some other, uh, people that we'll talk about as we go along. I think that they were definitely people that aren't going to buy the, the Subaru Impreza. They're not going to drink okay cola but they are going to spend the money they have, you know, going to see, uh, you know, Buffalo Tom at CBGB's or, you know, whatever, you know, I mean, and, and I think that, uh, it, it comes down to, you know, uh, there's one artist that I, I forget. There's somebody who was on Arista and you feel like they might've been like, yeah, okay, we'll put them on. Um, Sarah McLaughlin. Oh yeah. Which that song then later goes on to be a pretty big, like at this point that song, hold on, like that, that is a big song for her, but it's mm -hmm. not this version of it. Right. It, it, yeah. She like re-records it later. Cause that's, that's what I kind of forgot. And, you know, so I think in the moment it might've been like, why is she on here? But then, you look back even at the end of the the nineties, you're like, Oh yeah, she fits in here. These are, these are all bands. You could have programmed. What is this? Seven, 75 minutes. I think the CD yeah. you could have programmed a couple of hours of, uh, of your local alternative rock station, basically, you know, maybe not the Patti Smith tribute, but pretty much everything else you could have probably put in there and it would have seemed like, wow, they had such a great mix, you know, of, uh, well, of different artists. Yeah, and the Sarah McLaughlin thing is sort of the one when I went back to it, seemed to stick out. But then when I listened to it again, you had folks like, you know, Tori Amos, who was really considered an alternative uh, rock artist. And it's very similar to what Sarah McLaughlin was doing. And again, I think I compared it to Cocteau Twins with that sort of very ethereal voice and, and sort of haunting background. And so the, the song really does fit in well with, with this counterparts, even though that was... Uh, one of the ones where the A&R guy uh, was also Sarah McLaughlin's A&R person and sort of said, hey, look, I was trying to break her and just you know, was trying to, she had not really broken in at that point. And it was the record that that was then on, I think it was called Fumbling Towards Ecstasy, which was her third record, which really then the the, the floodgates opened. And then she ended up being arguably uh, more popular than any of the artists on Alternative, with the exception of maybe uh, uh, Nirvana. Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. It's sort of like a, end of uh, the 90s is, is a different landscape, you know, because at oh, yeah. this point you don't have artists like uh, Jewel or Sheryl Crow, you know, they're still a few years off, uh, but then uh, Sarah McLaughlin's able to spearhead Lilith Fair, which obviously was uh, very successful for a, a while there. Um, so let's talk about sort of putting the album together. So this guy, Chris Mundy, eventually, and I think there's some interesting, not even stops and starts, it seems like, 
the wheels start turning long before he actually puts it in motion, which I think was interesting to read about. But at some point, I think that the the key moment is when he gets paired up with John Carlin and and uh, who had done Red Hot. And I think that's really what really, at least at that point, it seemed like, okay, this is a record that's, that's really going to happen, uh, you know, at that moment. Yeah, I think what was really interesting, too, is I dug into the story not knowing a lot of this. Again, I was someone who really just had the record and liked it and wanted to, as I started to write the book, dig in and, and make contact with the, with the producers and get their personal stories, was one of the things that, that I really wanted to fight against in terms of the 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 sort of what Generation X was seen as was, again, slackers, you know, drenched in irony, just sort of sitting around coffee shops, uh, that sort of Ethan Hawke character from Reality Bites. And yet it was really Paul Heck who had the idea to raise awareness for AIDS and doing it through alternative music. Um, this was not, that's not something you do if you're a slacker. Um, he also, I said, why didn't you just sort of start your own record label or put this out yourself and become the next Sub Pop? You know, Sub Pop's first record was a compilation. And he said, you know, I just, I wanted to do something. I, I saw this happening around me. He was not someone who was personally affected by AIDS. He was a, a straight man in, in New York and so hadn't really even had a relative or a friend who had passed or been afflicted. Um, he just knew that there was something happening that was wrong. He was not seeing action from the local or federal governments and wanted to do something to help. It's a guy who's 25 years old um, and lists his friend, uh, Chris Mundy, who's the same age, Jessica Kowal, again, three Brown classmates. Um, and I was just so impressed that, you know, when I was 25, I was in the music scene, but really did not have that sort of activist event, um, uh, not terribly political either. And so I was really impressed that these three friends wanted to, to you know, change the world, wanted to raise awareness for this cause rather than just, you know, uh, start a label or do something for themselves. Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, it's you. You need people like the the three of them. You need the John Carlins, or these things don't happen, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, tour, as as we go along, we'll kind of talk about sort of the the impact this was able to have. But obviously, it, without the people who really push it along, and I think that the key to why no alternative the the record the album it wasn't a record until record store day which i didn't realize until you put it in there this was the at that time where vinyl didn't come out yeah. and uh uh you 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 talk about somebody in there talks about uh there there was a quote that i took down and uh, i don't have it in front of me but somebody makes the point about like well do you want to do you want to sit and listen to something uh from beginning to end and enjoy it or do you want to get up every 20 minutes and flip it over? And they didn't say this, but, you know, have to clean the needle. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I have two small children in my house. So the idea of like exploring vinyl was just out of the question for mm -hmm. me. It's like, what sounds good with one earbud in my ear while I'm doing the dishes? Uh, so I still, I still am a big proponent of CDs because of the fact that it's digital. I can put it, you know, into my, my iPhone, I can put it in my music device. I still have a car with a CD player. I have, I have an older car with a five CD changer and a cassette deck in it. So it's like, I get to listen to everything. You know? well, I would so. try to, here's my wall of CDs right over there. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, a big, look at that. I'm a big fan of the format too. And, and, What's interesting, too, is in 93 with the hidden track that Nirvana's song was, that was even not even kind of a thing yet. And people really take that for granted now. Like, oh, it's it's a hidden track that, you know, everyone was really doing that. And yet that was something that uh, the Beatles sort of initially kicked off. And yet the um, in the 90s, that became the thing to do. And Nirvana had one on their Nevermind record. And so uh, did it again here. And yet that was something then throughout the rest of that decade, everyone had to have a hidden track. But by the time that No Alternative came out in 93, that still wasn't quite a thing. Yeah, no, and it, and it was interesting as, you know, it was still the dominant format into the, the early 2000s. 
when Van stopped putting hidden tracks on, I was like, oh, come on. I love the hidden track. And you know, they would do things like, you know, there would be 15 tracks on the album and then the bonus track would be like track 99. So yeah. you'd have to like sit and really listen for a while. And, uh, you know, I always appreciate it. Now, a lot of times I would make a cassette of my CD so I could listen to it in the car I had at the time. So, you know, you, you sort of just put it all together. But uh, so this being a, a CD, though, I didn't think about this is that there was a limit. There's only so much time, you know? And I mean, in the late 80s, uh, the example that I know off uh, off the top of my head is that uh, Def Leppard's Hysteria is one of the first albums that was made with the idea of like, this is a CD, this is how mm. much time we have, this is how many songs we're gonna do. And they didn't approach it as a side one and a side two, even though it came out on vinyl and cassette, they just thought of it as like, okay, we're gonna put whatever it was, that, that might be 67 minutes. And, uh, you know, I think that a, a really a lot of bands probably still thought of you talk about cassettes in there because they were so cheap, you know, and uh, there's there's something that I like about the cassette from a nostalgia standpoint. The sound quality is not part of it, but I, I still like cassettes. Uh, one of the bands I want to talk about soon is uh, Soul Asylum, who I'm, I'm just a, I've always been a, a big fan of since Grave Dancers Union came out and uh their most recent album, they did actually release it on cassette. And uh, I reached out to their uh, publicist. I was like, I I'd really like one of those cassettes. And so she sent, she sent me two of them, actually. So uh, uh, there's, there's something about it. But uh, the CD, was, it was definitely more practical. But there's a limitation to the amount. So they couldn't put all the tracks on here. That's sort of the happy, happy accident. That, well, not happy accident. But the, the good problem to have is we have too many songs for the CD, right? Yeah, exactly. I think there was a certain point where they were at the very beginning being like, can we can we pull this off? Is this going to be an EP? And yet really, once they had a few key uh, artists signed up, then they started to get more and more tracks to where they were sort of spoiled for choice. Um, although the one um, error that Paul Heck admits that he made in the in the sequencing of the issuing of the record was Sonic Youth was on the cassette and not the CD. And I gather that the band wasn't terribly happy with that and reached out. And so in that 94 repress, uh, Barbara Manning had a song on the first um, version was removed in favor of the Sonic Youth track. So that's on the uh, the 94 CD repress. Um, but yeah, they just had they had too many tracks. And so some some things had to be relegated to the cassette. What's, what's right. nice and honestly, when your when your contribution is just a live version of a song that already existed, I mean, it's. It, 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 it's it's good of the Beastie Boys to have provided them with something, but it's kind of, I don't know, I would say it's the least inspired thing on the CD. And I, I'm a decent enough fan of the Beastie Boys that I, I enjoy them, you know, especially like, you know, ill communication, check your head. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a kid, I sure had licensed ill, but uh, I think as an adult, I appreciate some of their later stuff. But, you know, it, it definitely feels like an afterthought where most of this stuff doesn't. But uh, I, I think that I can understand the decision, but I feel like Sonic Youth was somebody that signed on early, it, it, unless I'm mistaken. So to put them on the cassette uh, was, uh, it was, it was a little bit of an insult, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, Thurston and, Moore seems like somebody that's going to let you know how he feels about something. And he did, and he did. And, yeah. and, and to Paul Heck's credit, he realized that early and, and made the changes as soon as he could. And yet, and one of the things that's been really amazing was just how big 
their influence was in the 90s, Sonic Youth. I mean, they were the ones who uh, brought uh, Nirvana to Geffen and really were tastemakers, um, being into so many of these bands early and, 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 and setting the scene and being an influence to a lot of bands. And so, um, again, really a miss to not have them be a part of it because they were really instrumental to that whole scene and what that scene later became. Yeah, they're they're one of those bands too that I think it's the the influence is is so huge, but they may never in their lifetimes, you know, get the acknowledgement. I mean, you know, I, I think a band like that isn't gonna be like, oh, I can't believe we're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is probably good because when you look yeah. at what they put into that, you know, I mean, I I'm not disparaging Missy Elliott's contributions for the genre that she's in, but certainly not somebody that you think like, well, she has to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right away. And, you know, not not a band like Foreigner or Boston or Styx, you know, yeah. I mean, they don't have to be anybody's favorite band, but they are rock and roll. And, uh, you know, uh, Sonic Youth would be another one. It's not people's favorite band. Uh, I mean, some people, but, you know, it might not be everybody's favorite band, but you're like, oh, yeah, but look at the impact. You know, I mean, they put they put Judas Priest in because of the impact that they had and probably because Tom Morello and Dave Grohl are like, you have to put them in. You know. Yeah, I would think to, I guess Sonic Youth is really sort of our generation's Velvet Underground, if you will. I mean, the whole yeah. the, the rap on the Velvet Underground was they sold 10,000 records, but each of those 10,000 people went out and formed a band. I mean, you, you go through so many and I've just already written my next book uh, and doing a lot of interviews of how did you get into the scene and the sound? You know, Sonic Youth, Sonic Youth, Sonic Youth really came out over and over again. So they were just really such a, an important part of the culture. Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, there's there's a lot of these bands, and um, the the one band that I forgot about is um, it, you know in sort of the the backstory. I remember is, is Buffalo Tom is the one, which is the one that splits off, and one half becomes Wilco. Is it Buffalo Tom or oh, Uncle that... Uncle Uncle Tupelo? Uncle Tupelo. See, I so I was like, as soon as I said it, I'm like, I think I have the wrong one. So yeah, the, you know, Uncle Tupelo being a band that you know certainly didn't really catch on. It was, a, it, you know, you would have seen a video of theirs on 120 Minutes or whatever. You would remember them before this. And then it's like, you know, uh, so the one guy splits off to do Wilco. The other guy does Sun Vault, which I I know because of a lot of the bands that I like. But uh, you know, whereas I feel like you know Wilco does you know multiple nights at like Madison Square Garden oh, sure. or Forum or something. So it's uh, it's interesting when you can trace it back because yeah, it was the it was the Uncle Tupelo song, which is I guess a cover of a CCR song. You're like, oh, you kind of hear it, you know, yeah. you, you definitely hear that sound of like, yeah, this is what Wilco sounds like. But you know, not one of my top ten bands. I have no 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 dislike for them, but I didn't think about them in that context. And so reading your book and listening to it, the album again, I'm like, oh yeah, there's, there's so much history here. There's inspiration, uh, influence from these artists, but then also they, you know, have gone off. I, I forgot until reading your book that, uh, uh, the, the, the woman who started Luscious Jackson had been the drummer in the Beastie Boys, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, so it's a, yeah. So there's a lot of like, like, oh yeah, there's so much to so many of these stories. And uh, you you rightly talk about uh, Bob Mould in here and uh, how, you know, he's looked at as the influence for Husker Du, which I never said that that band's name correctly, even though the umlauts were there. And then uh, it was actually an interview with the guys from Soul Asylum, also from Minneapolis, talking about it. I'm like, oh, is that how you say it? And it's like, yeah, what do you think those dots mean? Uh, yeah. It's Husker Du. I thought it was Husker Du. And that doesn't even make sense. If I thought it was Husker, duh, it would have made sense. But anyway, uh, his that first Sugar record that he did, Copper mm. Blue, is one of the best albums of the, I think it actually technically came out in 1989, but it's one of the best albums that most people don't know 
but anybody I know who has it is like, oh yeah, I love that album. Oh yeah. You know? And uh, he somehow like musically was better his second band. It, it was a, it was a thought you made. And, you know, I've seen him solo over the years and uh, I've never seen an artist who plays an acoustic guitar who has to retune and also sometimes restring his acoustic guitar. So I've, I've seen him break strings on songs that, that aren't even his like fastest songs. And uh, I, I think that uh, he's someone who I think you reference at this point, he wasn't out yet as being gay. Is that correct? He was not. Yeah. So that was, uh, you know, I think that uh, that was obviously this is like it's short, shortly after this. But obviously, he seems like someone that, that is a good fit for in here. But his just to think about his body of work, really going back to what the late 70s and, uh, you know, because we got to that corner talking about the influence and, and just uh, some of the some of the true talents that went into this. Um, what as you sort of were revisiting this. Uh, was there anything that maybe, look, maybe when you were a kid, maybe you hit the skip button on the CD and now you listen to it and you go like, oh my God. Because I didn't, I honestly, I didn't remember the Barbara Manning song mm -hmm. uh, and, and the Verlaine's. The, that wasn't my favorite part of the album, but I, I would leave it on and play it, but I don't think I was as focused on it until I was listening to it this time. Was there something in here that you were like, this is kind of a, a real hidden gem that uh, they're so lucky to have this included in this collection? Yeah, I think so. And even a, a bigger uh, revelation for me was Straight Jacket Fitz, which is another uh, New Zealand band who was on uh, Arista at the time. And I really didn't mind that whole New Zealand flying nun scene. And there's just so much great music that came out of New Zealand in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, you know, the Bats and the Queen and um, uh, uh, Verlaine's and all these sort of bands. And so, uh, and that's sort of where we live in a YouTube era or an internet era where you really can sort of just take the back of the CD now and go down these rabbit holes and listen to all of this stuff. Uh, whereas a lot of that music never made it to the states or if so it was on very pricey imports so that was sort of a, a world i hadn't gotten gotten into in, in in the in the 90s and so it's been really fun to go back and, and dig into that again yeah uh so uh, i mentioned a few times uh soul asylum have uh, a cover of marvin gaye's sexual healing in here was it recorded for this it seems like from what you wrote it was yeah to me it just seemed like oh they must have because they do a lot of interesting covers uh, usually in concert uh, but then also, you know, they'll have a lot of, like, if you go further back in their catalog, there's a lot of B-sides or just live tracks and stuff, uh, you know, stuff that sometimes you wouldn't expect. Uh, so, but they recorded that for this, uh, if that's correct. Yeah, they, they did. And they were doing, as you say, they're doing a number of sort of live cover versions in, the, in their uh, sets around the time. And they had like a week off before they were going to Europe, I think, to open up for Guns N' Roses or something. And this was during that period when that uh, Grave Dancers Union record really blew up and they could just do no wrong for about six months. Uh, I think they were um runaway train wasn't even the first single off of that record that record was already sort of taking off and then that video and that yeah i song, think it was somebody to shove black gold and then runaway train i believe that was the order they released uh, exactly yeah. and, and again those first two songs were, were good enough and then that one just sent it into the stratosphere and that really great video with the the, the phone numbers and, and the runaways and things and so you know one of the things i really liked about doing the the research into the songs in the book was again the rap on generation x was you know slackers irony and yet some of these bands were just working their asses off and soul asylum was 
was one of them. I mean, even before they uh, started to break through, they had crisscrossed the country numerous times. Um, they were already ascending very quickly and yet, you know, wanted to take some time out to record the stuff because they loved playing. They loved being on the road. They loved um, putting this stuff out. And so was just, you know, couldn't believe the work ethic that some of these bands had um, to go in and do this stuff on short notice and to just really just, you know, just play, play, play. Yeah. And then, you know, in terms of uh, their covers, I mean, they will they I've I've seen them play Rhinestone Cowboy as a part of a, an encore and uh, Tracks of My Tears. You know, just some very interesting things. And they, they make it sound pretty cool, you know, and uh, uh, obviously Sexual Healing is uh, it's a great song. And uh, I, I had remembered a lot of the Marvin Gaye story, but uh, you, you 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 do explore that a little bit, and uh, just what a truly tragic uh, ending it is. But also, you make the point that uh, record company people uh, can be so tone deaf, even the ones who work in music, because they they were like, "No, nah, I don't think you should do that." What's going on, song, right? That's crazy. That was Barry Gordy for the head of Motown. Yeah, so, right. You know that that song is garbage, and that that is now one of the you know uh, apocryphal uh, uh, songs that really almost changed you know, musical history. That would though the Soul Asylum song. I would say though, when I first listened to the uh, compilation, I actually thought that was a bit flippant. Um, you know, it was about AIDS, and they're talking about you know sexual healing, and I thought it was a little bit more tongue in cheek. And yet, as I look back, I I see what I think the band was trying to convey, which was that you know we're you know. The generation are going to be sexual beings and sexually active, but you need to do so in a way that's responsible. And so I, I that's sort of the one of the things that in the last 30 years I've sort of come around to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I, I think that uh, I think you even mentioned in the beginning that, uh, you know, a lot of people did buy this collection because they knew that the Nirvana song was on it. And it's a great Nirvana song. Uh, and I guess there's uh, the confusion that it, it, it's listed as verse, chorus, verse in the version that ha has them on it. But it's technically it's sappy because they have a different song called verse, chorus, verse. whatever it's called. It's a great song. But what I didn't know was uh, that they had tried to record it so many times. Um, knowing Nirvana music fairly well, the fact that they couldn't quite get the sound they wanted with Chad Channing doesn't surprise me. Uh, you know, really bringing Dave Grohl in, I think really, you know, it helped their sound in, in such an incredible way. But uh, talk a little bit about that song, which again is the most famous song on this collection, despite the fact that if you have the version that uh, that I do, it's not listed on there, you know? So. Yeah, it was sort of the world's worst secret in terms of, you know, that the record company, the stipulation that the record company gave to the Red Hot organization to, to include that song was that it could not be listed on the packagings and that it couldn't be sent to radio stations as uh, as a single to play because they were really concerned with pushing the new record, which came out just about the same time. Heart Shaped Box as a single came out in September and No Alternative came out in October. So they didn't want anything to compete with the new Nirvana material. And this was a song that the band had tried to uh, get right. Uh, I think they had recorded it with every incarnation of the band with uh, Jack and Dino, Steve Albini. And what I really like about that is it sort of goes against, again, the grain of Cobain as being just sort of, you know, spaced out, uh, you know, drug addict, let, let's say, uh, kind of strung out, not really caring about the, the work and stuff. This was something he was a perfectionist. He wanted to get this song right. They never got it to where he he, um, he was uh, fully satisfied with it, um, and so it never made it onto a record, but they did um, uh, give it to no alternative. One of the things that I was most surprised when I was doing research into the book was that the, the song that the label initially wanted to include for an alternative was a Dave Grohl song, um, which he later covered with Foo Fighters Live. 
Um, and the uh, the Red Hot folks were none too pleased to get a Nirvana song that had Dave Grohl singing. Now, these days, you would love for Dave Grohl to sing because he's a star with Foo Fighters and has won, I think, you know, 10 Grammys and sold, you know, millions and millions of records. But uh, back in the day, that was seen as something that wasn't terribly attractive. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, when I was a, uh, <laughs> when I was a, 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 a talent booker for a, a radio show, a, a, a studio. I was trying to get, uh, there's some terrible movie called The Rocker that Rain Wilson was in. And mm. I was trying to get him on the radio show. And uh, they offered me Emma Stone. And I was like, no one wants to hear from her. Uh, so I guess we just won't do it. And, uh, you know, within a year, I was like, oh, okay. I guess I'm an idiot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, yeah. Sometimes you get those moments, but uh, that Marigold song is 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 great. But I can understand not wanting, you know, it's it's one thing for the Goo Goo Dolls to give you a song that isn't sung by their singer, but it's like you're getting the biggest band, and you don't want that reaction of like, what? They didn't even give us a song that Kurt sang, yeah. and you know, maybe if Dave had sung, uh, you know, if he'd had a track on Nevermind, which obviously he wouldn't have because he was new to the band at the time, you know, maybe. But I, I think that uh, this is a, a much better choice because it. You mentioned that it's listed on some lists of like top Nirvana songs and like the top fifteen or top twenty Nirvana songs, and it, it's hard to argue with, you know, no. because it's uh, it, it is. A great song. Um, before we wrap up entirely, I want to talk about the look of No Alternative. And uh, I think it's important to talk about um, what I don't think I realized. Uh, so her name's Claudia Brandenburg, right, mm -hmm. who did the design of the cover. And so talk a little bit about what the image is for our visual audience. Uh, you, you see it's the cover of your book. It's the cover of the CD version. Talk a little bit about how that came about. And there are some variations on this image uh, for the different releases. So talk a little bit about how that happened. You bet. And the, the designer's name is Claudia Brandenburg, and that's her on the cover. And so she worked at a, a design company called Bureau, which itself was an offshoot of an art collective called Grand Fury, which was responsible for a lot of the act up imagery in the late 80s. And so when John Carlin wanted to do an alternative rock record to raise awareness of AIDS, he knew just who to go to. And that was this company called Bureau. Um, they had mocked up some early designs of the covers using stock art of children with sort of these bullseyes on their faces or, or alongside their, their um, images. Um, and Bureau liked to use themselves and their friends in some of their work. And so in order to sort of involve their friends and themselves and to save some money, they said, well, let's send to let's send away to our parents to get our old school photos. We can actually make them as part of the, the artwork. And so Claudia, being the lead designer on the on the piece, actually put herself and there's there were two covers of the original CD, the boy girl, the boy cover and the girl cover and the boy cover is her brother and they were both school photos from when they were in grade school um, and so she sort of you know put herself on there um, one of the things I think that's really made the record last is that it doesn't look very 90s you know there was a very 90s aesthetic with like ray gun magazine and sort of xeroxing and white out and uh, having a look very DIY and yet they really did not sort of uh, do that. And so it makes the record really timeless. Um, and what they wanted to do by using these, these, these photos of school kids on the cover was to really say that, that anybody could get AIDS. This could be, it's, it's, uh, it's not just for, for gay men, it's for straight men, it's for women. Um, and it can really affect anyone. And it was this thing to where so many people were dying, whole generations were disappearing that to use the, the kids, the, the sort of the metaphor was, this was a kid who will not be able to grow up. This is a child who will not become an adult and be able to lead their life because they're going to be struck down by this, you know, really terrible condition. And so they wanted to raise awareness and thought that was a, a good way of doing so. 
Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, you're right. And as you were talking and you mentioned the the 90s aesthetic with sort of the whiteout, the, the Xerox, I was thinking I could visualize the rancid Outcome the Wolves album and yeah. how that's exactly what that looks like and how it would have been a choice to make this look like that. But it's like, it has a timeless feel because it's a picture from the 70s, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, of her as a little girl. And I thought it was interesting that uh, there were some very brief plans to have done a sequel and uh, she was going to use a picture of her from high school for the cover, which seemed so interesting, you know? Yeah. Kind of the the 10 years on version. Yeah. But um, there's also, there was an MTV special and uh, you know, you talk about how it was released on home video and I started to think of like, Oh yeah, I never saw that. Well, there's a reason why I never saw that because the home video didn't last very long and uh, boy, it always comes back to Led Zeppelin, doesn't it? It does. And, and high-powered lawyers as well. And so there was a, a snippet in the background of a song that used a little bit of a Led Zeppelin uh, uh, a sample in there. And they got the sample cleared for the record, but apparently they didn't do the paperwork for the inclusion of the short video, which was co-directed, by the way, by R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe um, and the legendary um, ex-wrestler, a 300-pound, uh, very litigious manager of Led Zeppelin, found out about this and actually requested that they pull the product from the shelves. Now, again, this was a charity project. This was, you know, meant to raise money and awareness for this really devastating condition that people were living through. And yet um, uh, he insisted that this would be something that had to be taken off the market. John Carlin from Red Hot wanted to go to the mattresses basically and fight this and said, you know, we can kind of bring it on. Uh, and and Polygram Home Video, who was putting out the video, just wanted to opt for the, the easiest thing. And so they pulled it from the shelves. And so sadly, it was not... Uh, available for very long but thanks to our internet age you can find uh the special on mtv and the whole uh, the whole thing is online so you can find it to this day well i must not have searched well enough because i only found clips i wanted to sit down after i read this i'm like i want to watch the whole thing but uh, i'll look harder um so it's just as you point out because this was for charity you know yes uh, this album was successful and it made money but if there was also this home video they you know, maybe they wouldn't have made twice as much, but they would have generated a lot. And, uh, you know, I guess pulling everything off the shelves uh, is expensive. So there's not the the feeling of like, oh, let's just uh, re, you know, I think even, you know, in the, even in the age of DVDs, you could have been like, all right, well, we'll just put out a new version that doesn't have that in there. Especially now with streaming, you could have like put out something, um, but, uh, you know, so that it, it was sad to, to read that. It's like, oh, yeah, it just it was gone. Um, but let's not end on that bummer. Let's talk about the success. Uh, and you talk about there's a there's a presentation of like a million dollar check uh, at one point, And then, uh, well, let's let's start there uh, about the, the success of the album. Sure. Well, again, the the model of Red Hot that was really, I think, unique to them was that they let the artists choose where they wanted the money to go to. So in in every case, um, you know, Buffalo Tom put forth, they're from from Boston, they're from Massachusetts. So they put forth uh, a, a charity uh, um, in their own community. Same with Urge Overkill and Smashing Pumpkins. Money was going to Chicago. Um, the Beastie Boys, I think it was Mike D when Red Hot approached them and said, you know, where do you want the money from the proceeds to go to? And he said, you know what? We've been part of uh, a number of these things and no one's ever asked us that. And so they had the money go to a needle exchange program in what was then their hometown of Los Angeles. 
um, Graeme Downs from the Verlaine said that he put forth uh, an AIDS exchange program in New Zealand that kept that organization afloat for two years based just on what the money coming in from his one song on this one compilation did. And so not only did this really help people with AIDS and raise awareness, but it helped these individual communities that these artists were from, which is something that, again, is, is very rare in the world of, of charity organizations and compilations and fundraising efforts. Yeah, and uh, by Sarah McLaughlin being involved, some of the money went up to Canada. Yep. Uh, you know, and I thought, uh, I, I thought that uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't read a, a lot of, of things about charities, but you usually feel like, you know, it's like for USA for Africa, or sure. it's for the one, you know, the one organization, and the idea that it all went, and you know, it wasn't like, oh yeah, you know, the the this hospital in Minneapolis got a thousand dollars. The fact that there was a substantial amount of money that went to all of these different places uh, was great. And I think that, uh, look, obviously this one project, all the red hot projects weren't, uh, you know, the direct result, but it was a big part of one raising money, but also just raising awareness. And you sort of talk about how within a few years, there were what are they called the protease inhibitors or do i uh, the, the so there's basically a, a, an a, an advent that it seems like it's exactly what act up we're talking about in the, the early 80s was like to try to get to the drug companies you can figure this out so that you know aids certainly didn't go away but it became it wasn't the automatic death sentence i mean talk a little bit about how you know whether it's, you know, fundraising that led to more research, whatever it was, within a few years, by the mid 90s, there was at least a chance that uh, that you could live for a you know, considerable amount of time. Very much so. And in fact, ACT UP sort of put itself out of business because they really did achieve their aims to where people then were were living and doctors even called it the Lazarus effect. And so when going into 1994, if, if folks had managed to um, hang on until then, people with AIDS, when they got these new drugs, they really were recuperating. People were living with HIV for um, uh, you know, decades and are still around, even having been diagnosed back then. Um, but Red Hot really stuck with it. In fact, John Carlin always says that Red Hot is the one company that wants to go out of business. Uh, and yet, right. as we've seen, you know, our AIDS still exists in marginalized communities and countries, uh, sort of similar to how we're seeing COVID now. You know, COVID in, in, in first world countries like America, you know, we've had our two shots and our boosters, but in many parts of the globe, um, it is still very much something that is killing people and infecting lots of people. And so Red Hot continues to this day. They just put out a new record, which is a tribute to Sun Ra. They have a new single, which is a cover of Nuclear War, which is, you know, just amazing. They're still doing great work because unfortunately, um, you know, these global pandemics are still out there. There's still a lot of politicization of the cures and the ways for people to protect themselves. And so, you know, they continue to do great work 30 years on. Yeah, no, and I think that uh, it, it's it's important. And yeah, I think that a cause like this, I, I remember reading that in the book, is you would love to go out of business, but uh, it, it's like, it's great to, to still have them in business. And, you know, and I think that's why this, uh, this album is probably more memorable to me as I thought back, you know, as I saw that targeted Facebook advertising, I'm like, oh, I love that record. I, I think of it in a much different way than I do like Sub Pop 200 and yeah. not 
so much because there's, you know, some stuff on there that's, let's be honest, it's not great. Sure. But, you know, it's, uh, and a lot, that's true for a lot of collections. And uh, listening to this in its entirety, it's funny, I had to play it on my Blu-ray player because uh, I didn't have an indoor CD player. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, I, I, I do, but it's out in the, my garage office that I have. And I was just like, all right, I'll just put it in the, in the Blu-ray. And uh, it was like, oh, it kind of sounded great with the TV that loud, you know? And it was great to sit down and listen to it. Um, Jeff, I really appreciate uh, you taking so much of your time to talk to me. Uh, you had mentioned you're working on your next book. Is it something you're able to talk about yet, or is that uh, down the road you, you'll be able sure. to? Sure. No, I think it'll be, it'll be out in about a year. Uh, the 33 and a third series, they have a new series called Genre, where each book is a short look at a musical genre. And I've written uh, an entry on math rock, which I think will be out next year for Bloomsbury. And I saw that uh, one of your uh, previous books, I believe it's called Vicious. It's about this time where Lou Reed quit the music industry and you kind of reference it in the, in this book. And I remember thinking, I'm like, I, I, I mean, I'm not a huge Lou Reed fan. I think that uh, he's very talented. I even, I legitimately, I kind of like that album that he did with Metallica that everyone hates, but I was like, Oh, it's really interesting. Um, I, I know, I know the hits basically, but I always found him to be a really interesting guy. He used to go on Howard Stern all the time, you know, and, and it's just, uh, you know, but this idea that there's a point where he quit the music industry and goes and lives with his parents and, what does he do as a day job? It's, uh... He works for his dad, who's an accountant. And this was a guy who I think any any sort of, you know, 24 year old who moves back in with his parents is probably not seeing that as a power move. And yet he was someone who really hated his parents. His parents subjected him to shock treatment when he was a teenager and really yeah. did some lasting mental damage. And yet he moved back into his old childhood room in Sag Harbor, Long Island, and moved, worked for his dad for $40 a day, $40 a week, rather, uh, as a typist. And so what I did was uh, take this little known period in Reed's life and sort of spin it into a, a murder mystery, if you will, involving him and uh, Andy Warhol and the factory in Maxis, Kansas City is a, just a little bit of a feat of imagination on my party. That's it's a novel called Vicious. Yeah, but uh, just uh, to explore that uh, period of time, it's, uh, you know, there you can always find those those interesting things like that. Yeah. You know, it's uh, stuff be, behind the legend, you know, uh, exactly. so uh, very, very interested in uh, I'm going to definitely check that out. But uh, the book we've been talking about for more than an hour, uh, our <laughs> guest, uh, Jeff Gomez, so kind with his time. There was no alternative. Generation X, AIDS and the making of a classic 90s record. Uh, I recommend uh, people pick up the book and uh, certainly read through it. But at the same time, while you're reading, you would should uh, listen to the album. Uh, it's uh, it's available. Although, as you point out, don't look for the vinyl of it because uh, it was a record store day exclusive. Oh, yeah. And so I did look. Fast. It is it, it's pretty expensive. So oh, yeah. I was like, okay, I guess I don't need that. But uh, the uh, the CDs are still out there, and uh, it, it it's available uh, digitally. You sort of mentioned that they wanted to make sure that all of their the red hot stuff didn't get lost, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it's it's all still out there. Uh, so. Uh, thank you again so much for your time, and uh, thanks to uh, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next time on The Blackcast.
listening to The Bladcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Bladcast. That's B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. You can also subscribe to the audio version wherever podcasts are found. Like The Bladcast on Facebook, follow at Bladcast on Twitter and Instagram, and of course, the man responsible for what you just heard is on Twitter and Instagram at ChristianDMZ. I'm Farad Muhammad, and if you want me to voice your podcast intro, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at F-A-R-D-M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. We will see you next time on The Bladcast. Well, this has been The Bladcast. I am your host. <laughs> you can find me at ChristianDMZ. Jeff Duray, not on Twitter. The Bladcast. Welcome to the stream. Who are you? One of the best podcasts you can ever see, the Blackcast. Whoop-dee-doo, we're watching it. We got no Wi-Fi. We can't hear a thing, but we love it. Go watch the Blackcast with me and Carl. It was a great show. Who was the guest that got Cardiff to do the uh, mommy drinkers thing? Oh, I don't remember. Christian Blatt. Christian Blatt. Are you ready to play to catch an alien? Christian When I was talking to Christian Blatt, good luck with the whole thing. And you know, here's to another 500, get you to a thousand, you know, which is more than 500 last time I checked. One of Christian Blatt's favorite people in here to talk to one of his other favorite people. Hello, fellow favorite person of Christian Blatt. How are you? Hi, other fellow (laughs) favorite person of Christian Blatt. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. We're closed. (laughs) That was not my fault.